Um, and uh, hope that uh, you're able to join us at 5.30. We're going to watch a video on what God is doing in India. And those who have come out for those videos, I think, have enjoyed them. And then on th Thursday night at 6, uh, the college interns are going to be sharing with us, guys, for the men's dinner. And I think you'll be blessed as they are able to serve and minister. And then on March 3rd, and it's on the back of the bulletin, the uh, college young ladies are going to minister to our women. And uh, I think that's a great uh, great source of joy to me just to see young people rising up to serve in the Lord's uh, work. We're going to continue... Um, in uh, Exodus, and so I'm going to be reading Exodus chapter 3. When I laid out this series, I originally planned to do this in one message, but as I got into it, I thought there's no way I can even do justice to all the great truths here in one. So this will be part one of two, and I'd like to read the text before I begin. Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, and yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He also said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their suffering. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. And furthermore, I've seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, come now and I'll send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, Certainly, I'll be with you. And this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall worship God at this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I'll say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What's his name? What shall I say to them? 
God said to Moses, I am who I am. And thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial name to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I am indeed concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. So I said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite to a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will pay heed to what you say. And you with the elders of Israel will come to the king of Egypt and you'll say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, so please, now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion. And so I'll stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles, which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, he will let you go. I'll grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be that when you go, you'll not go empty-handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor, and the woman who lives in her house, articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing, and you will put them on your sons and daughters, and thus you will plunder the Egyptians. I uh, love a verse that my friend Greg shared last week, and uh, that is Jonah chapter 3 and verse 1, which says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. The word of the Lord had come to Jonah the first time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. The problem was Jonah hated the Ninevites because they were enemies of Israel. And Jonah knew that God is a God who is gracious and compassionate and ready to show his uh, abundant loving kindness to others, slow to anger. So he knew if he went, Chances were God was going to forgive the Ninevites. And he wanted to see them nuked. You know, he just wanted to see them wiped off the earth and judged because he hated them. And so instead of obeying God's command, you know the story, Jonah booked a berth on a ship heading in the opposite direction to Tarshish. And Jonah 1.3 says he booked that away from the presence of of the Lord. That's a funny verse. How can you get away from the presence of the Lord? You can't do it. And so Jonah gets on the ship and goes there and the Lord sends the great storm. And uh, Jonah gets thrown overboard at his request. And then that's not enough. The Lord sends the great fish to swallow Jonah 
and spit him out on the beach back where he began. And the story is so many lessons, but one of them is, you know, you can run from God, but you can't hide. God knows where you're at, and he has means. It's interesting, just as an aside in that story of Jonah, everything obeys the Lord except Jonah the prophet. You know, the, the wind obeys the Lord and sends up the storm. The fish obeys the Lord and swallows Jonah and spits him out right where he should. Uh, the sailors obey the Lord and throw Jonah overboard and uh, then worship the Lord. Uh, later in the story, even the gourd and the worm obey the Lord. But there's a disobedient prophet there who has trouble. And then we read Jonah 3, one. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. And that's a great verse because it says to us, God is the God of the second chance and the third and the fourth. God knows where you're at. And even if you're trying to run from him, he has a way of going after you and bringing you back. When Moses was 40 years old, he thought that God was going to use him to deliver the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. He assumed that God's people were ready to be delivered, and so he saw this Egyptian beating an Israelite slave, and Moses um, rose up and struck down, killed the Egyptian. The next day, he saw two Hebrews fighting with one another, and so again... Thinking he's the deliverer, he steps in to break up the fight, but finds out that they do not recognize his role as a leader. And furthermore, they mention his murder of the Egyptian the day before, and he realizes, "Uh uh-oh, that is public news. Pharaoh hears about it, seeks to kill Moses, and so he has to flee for his life. He ended up in a remote, remote place out in the barren desert where he met a nomadic shepherd named Ruel, who also is named Jethro. Both names are used of him. He was the priest of Midian. He had seven daughters. Now, we don't know for certain at this point in the story whether uh, Jethro was what we would call a believer in the one true God. Uh, By chapter 18, it would seem that he is. We meet him again there, and he seems to profess a faith in God. But meanwhile, Moses marries one of the sisters, uh, one of the daughters, a woman named Zipporah. He has two sons. He tends his father-in-law's sheep for 40 years out in that desert. And I can't help but think that out there in that lonely desert, which was such a contrast to where he had come from, that he didn't think often about why am I out here. He had been at the center of importance in Pharaoh's court, and now he's out there all by himself watching a bunch of sheep in Nowheresville. And I think he probably struggled with, well, why hadn't God used me to deliver his people. And then one day that began just like every day for 40 years had begun, 
He's out there tending his father-in-law's sheep, and a, bur- a bush bursts into flame. Okay, it's a hot desert. Probably he had seen that phenomenon before, but this one wasn't burned up. And so he turns aside to figure out what's going on here. And at that point, the angel of the Lord calls to him from the middle of the bush, tells him to return to Egypt to be God's instrument in delivering the Israelites from the hand of Pharaoh. Now in verses 4 and 6, this angel is identified as God himself. And so my understanding is that It was a pre-incarnate manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ to Moses because God who is spirit cannot be seen. And so I think the angel of the Lord was Jesus appearing to Moses before he actually took on uh, human flesh. And in that one instant, that one day out of 40 years, The life of Moses would never be the same. The life of God's people, Israel, would never be the same. Now, when we read a story like this, we need to recognize that it's an actual historical account of God delivering a people from horrible oppression and slavery. And from that perspective, the story is certainly relevant to many situations in the world today in that God hates that kind of oppression of people uh, by evil dictators. But in applying it to us, the story, and the New Testament uses it this way, the story is also a picture of God's delivering His people spiritually from bondage to a far more cruel tyrant, than Pharaoh, namely from Satan, the enemy of our souls. And so we can apply this story on that level, and it shows us a great lesson in how God saves His people. Namely, that salvation clearly is from the Lord for His chosen people. Uh, He brings it about through His chosen servants who know Him, who know themselves, and who know His power and promise for their mission. But in this message, I can only develop the first part of that statement. Namely, we want to look at how salvation is from the Lord for His chosen people, and it comes through His chosen servants who know Him. And so the first thing to note here is that salvation is from the Lord for His chosen people. You know, after His first major setback there when he had to flee for his life. Moses didn't seek out a career counselor and and maybe get some advice on how to advance his career as the deliverer of Israel to get a fresh start, you know, to remake himself and his act and all of that. As you read this story, the obvious mover and shaker in the whole story isn't Moses. It's the Lord. The Lord who intends to save His chosen people. The first thing we see here is that God then sovereignly chooses to save His people. You notice in verse 7, God calls the Israelites, My people. In Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 37, Moses says, Because He loved your fathers, 
Therefore, he chose them, or their descendants, after them. And so the Lord chose to set his love on Abraham and then on his descendants through Isaac and Jacob. And God reminds Moses of his promise to Abraham to give his descendants the land of Canaan. He mentions it in verse 8. He repeats it again in verse 17. And so now, although Israel has been in bondage in Egypt for uh, in slavery over 200 years there, God had not forgotten his chosen people. He had not forgotten his covenant that he had made so clear in, in the book of Genesis with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now that covenant goes back over 400 years to when God first appeared to Abraham in a city called Ur of the Chaldees. It would be way over in modern Iran, hundreds of miles from Israel. And God called this man who came from a line of idolaters. And he sovereignly chose one man out of that pagan city. And he commanded him to go to the land that he would direct him to. He hadn't been there before. didn't know anything about it. He had to go out by faith. And God promised to bless Abram, to make him a great nation, to give him that land where the Canaanites were then dwelling, and to bless all nations through his descendants. And as we know from the New Testament, the main descendant he blesses the nations through is the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Abraham's wife, you know the story, Sarah, she was barren. And so after a long while, and they were past her ability physically to bear children, they come up with a scheme to have Abraham uh, have a son through her maid, Hagar. And it works. Ishmael is born. And Abraham says, Lord, may Ishmael live before you. And the Lord said, well, thank you, but no thank you. God said, uh, Isaac is going to be the son of the promise. And miraculously, Sarah conceives and gives birth to Isaac. Isaac grows up. Same song, second verse. His wife, Rebecca, can't have any children. He cries out to the Lord, and the Lord gives them twins. The Lord rejects the older twin, Esau, and picks the younger one, Jacob. Uh, the Lord, um, at that time also, prophesied to Abraham, we saw in Genesis 15 in our last time, that his descendants would be enslaved in a foreign land uh, before they returned to Canaan. And so Moses now is born during that time of slavery that God had prophesied to Abraham. Uh, we saw also in the first chapters of Exodus how God spared Moses' life when Pharaoh issued the edict to kill all of the Hebrew baby boys. Uh, he was sovereignly, miraculously raised by Pharaoh's daughter as her own son. But the book of Hebrews says that by faith, he turned his back on all of the privilege and the power and the, the wealth that he would have enjoyed as Pharaoh's daughter's uh, as Pharaoh's daughter's son, 
And instead, he sought to identify himself with these enslaved Hebrew slaves, God's people. So God didn't choose to save Egypt. He rather set his favor on these enslaved descendants of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob, who is called Israel. You know, I have found there are a lot of Christians who struggle with the doctrine of election, that God chose some and not all for salvation. I have yet to encounter one of those Christians who will not admit God chose Israel. God chose Israel. Have you ever thought about that? He could have chosen the whole city of Ur of the Chaldees. He chose one man, Abram. said, you go out. And then he could have chosen Ishmael. And God said, no. Deliberately, Abram said, please, God, pick Ishmael. God said, no, thank you. I have a son. I'm going to bless Isaac and his descendants. Isaac had two sons, and he could have chosen Esau. I would have. He was a nicer man than Jacob. I'd rather have Esau as my neighbor than Jacob any day. And God said, no, no, Jacob's my man. And he chose him. And you know, God could have said, well, Israel's down in Egypt. Let's get all the Egyptians saved. And God said, no, no, I want you to go out. And he brought all the plagues on the Egyptians. And you think about it, by choosing Israel, God rejected most of our ancestors in Europe, Africa, Asia, All around the world, North and South America, all of those peoples were in darkness for two millennia. In fact, more than that, before the gospel got to many of them. And the only verse I can find that deals with that is in Acts 14 where Paul says, In times past, God permitted the nations to go their own way. Now, if you struggle with that, You're struggling with God (laughs) because God is sovereign and God could have worked a different plan. He could have sent an angel to every people group on the planet way back in the time of Abraham if he had so chosen. And he didn't choose to do that. And I have found with the doctrine of election, I have to submit. I don't understand it. Sometimes... At least in the past, I didn't even like it. But I had to submit to it. Why? Because it's from Genesis to Revelation that God is a sovereign God who saves His people. And, you know, why did He save me? And why did He save you? I don't know. Not because we deserved it. Not because He foresaw that we would choose Him. We wouldn't have if He had not interjected His grace into our lives. He did it in sovereign love. Now, before God's people, His chosen people, can appreciate or respond to the good news of Christ, they have to feel the bad news. They have to feel their need 
for a savior because you can't save people who don't feel a need to be saved. We saw that when Moses tried to, you know, intervene with the two Hebrews and they said, who made you Lord over us, man? We don't need you. And they rejected Moses. But now we see that salvation comes from the Lord to his chosen people who feel their need for salvation. Uh, Forty years earlier, Moses was going to be the great Savior, and they rejected him. But after Moses had been out there hiding in the desert for 40 years, we read back in uh, chapter 2, verse 23, that the sons of Israel sighed because of their bondage. They cried out. And then in verses 24 and 25 at the end of chapter 2, so God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice, or literally, God knew them. And that's a human way of speaking of God, because he always hears, remembers, sees, and knows his people. But uh, it's, it's pointing out God from our perspective. Now, I pointed out in our last study, you can't lead someone to salvation who doesn't realize I need it. I think nobody presents this more humorously and effectively than Ray Comfort. He, he uses an illustration of a bunch of people flying on an airplane, and they're cruising along comfortably on their flight at 35,000 miles, or I mean feet in the air and 600 miles an hour, you know, getting where they're going. And... Uh, a guy comes along and says, uh, excuse me, would you like a parachute? And the person looks at it and they go, that thing's heavy and it's going to be uncomfortable. I can't lean back in my seat. No, thanks. You know, besides that, everybody's going to think I'm weird. You know, I'm paranoid. If I put a parachute on in this flight that's cruising along, just fine. Thank you. No, thanks. What would change that in an instant is if the pilot came on the intercom and said, ladies and gentlemen, we're facing a serious crisis. Our engines are failing and the plane is going to go down. Now the stewardesses are coming around with parachutes. Suddenly, everybody is going to be grabbing for that chute and putting it on promptly because they know this plane's going down. And you see, people in life who are cruising along just fine, no problem, everything's great, man, got a good job, good home, you know, uh, everything I need. Oh, salvation? Oh, no thanks. You know, that might make my life a little uncomfortable. <laughs> you know, I don't want that heavy burden on me. Uh, thank you, no. And so before they will receive the parachute, they need to realize, you know what? Your plane's going down, pal. And you're under condemnation. And unless you repent and turn to Christ and receive the, the free gift that he offers you, that's the parachute, you're going to be standing before a holy God, and it isn't going to be pretty. And so people need to understand that they are lost and condemned without Christ and facing God's horrific judgment before they're going to take the good news he offers. Now, the Bible makes it clear, though, that salvation isn't just to relieve people's misery and deliver them from bondage to sin and death. And so we see here that 
the purpose of God's salvation is always so that His people will worship Him and serve Him. In verse 12, God gives Moses a sign. He says, after you've brought Israel out of bondage in Egypt, they will worship God at the mountain where Moses saw the burning bush. And the Hebrew word that is translated worship also means to be enslaved or to serve. And Moses, later, when he asked Pharaoh to let Israel go, and this occurs about 12 times in the book of Exodus, he says, let us go that we may serve the Lord our God. And it's making the point, either you're a slave in Egypt or you're a slave of God. Those are the only choices, as Bob Dylan used to sing, you've got to serve somebody. And the point is, again, that God doesn't save us just so we can go out and live happily in the land of Canaan. He saves us so that we will worship and serve Him, that He gets the glory through our salvation. And so the first point here is simply that salvation is from the Lord for His chosen people, for, their, for His glory, for His glory. But how does God do it? Well, salvation is from the Lord through His chosen servants who know Him. Um, In verse 8, it's interesting, God says, I've come down to deliver them. In verse 10, He says, I'm going to send you so that you may bring my people out of Egypt. You say, well, which is it? Well, it's both. God is going to deliver His chosen people And, you know, he could have sent an angel in a single night, killed the entire Egyptian army. He does that later when Hezekiah is being attacked by Sennacherib's army. He could have done that. Uh, Would have been probably a little cleaner and neater than using Moses. But instead, he uses his chosen servant, Moses, to deliver his chosen people. You know, I'll get people when I talk about the doctrine of election who will say, well, if God's going to save them, then we don't need to witness. That's a false conclusion. How does God save lost people? He does it through His chosen people who tell them the good news about Jesus. In other words, He uses means, and we are His means. And uh, the Apostle Paul said that in 2 Timothy 2.10. He said, for this reason... I endure all things, and he's in prison facing death when he wrote this. I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen. That's God's elect. Why does he do it? So that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. And so God's sovereignty in saving a people for his name does not negate the need for his people to be the instruments that go out and proclaim the good news worldwide. Now, to be effective, though, in serving the Lord, we have to know the Lord. We have to know Him well. And this is a lifelong process and will never arrive, and you should not wait till you have arrived at some point of deep knowledge before you start serving Him. But in the process of serving Him, you should get to know Him in at least five ways here that our text shows. First of all, and I think this is foundational, God's servants need to know His holiness. God could have revealed His plan 
and himself to Moses in many ways. And he chose to do it through this bush that burned but was not consumed. And at first Moses was curious. He turned aside to say, this is kind of weird. And suddenly his curiosity was turned to fear. As God said, Moses, take off your sandals. You're on holy ground. Sandals were put off before you entered a place of worship so you wouldn't bring defilement from the outside into that holy place, according to Alfred Edersheim, a Jewish Christian scholar. And it's interesting, this is the first use of the noun holy in the Bible. First time that noun is used. And it says in verse 6 that Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Now what does it mean, the burning bush? Well, fire in the Bible often represents God's holy presence. Remember in Genesis 15, or uh, yeah, 15, when God confirmed his covenant with Abraham, there was uh, a smoking oven and a flaming torch. And it represented the presence of God there. Later, God will accompany Israel in the wilderness with the pillar of cloud by day to protect them from the blazing desert sun and the pillar of fire by night to give illumination. Later on, when the tabernacle was established, two of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Abihu, tried to offer what's called strange fire on the altar. And we read in Leviticus 10.2 that fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. So again, fire and the presence of the Lord. Later in Deuteronomy 4.24, Moses will tell Israel, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And I could take you to many more references in the Old Testament, but when you come to the New Testament, John the Baptist, who is proclaiming Jesus as Messiah, says, I baptize you in water, but he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And then when the Holy Spirit comes on the early church there in Acts chapter 2, he appears as tongues of fire resting on each person. And so I think that the burning bush represents God's holy presence. Now, I'm differing here with John Calvin, who thought that the burning bush represented God's despised people, and the fire represented their oppression in Egypt uh, that would have consumed them if God had not miraculously intervened. Uh, Alfred Edersheim, the uh, Jewish Christian scholar I mentioned, thought that the bush pictured Israel, but the fire was God, the consuming fire in her midst. And I respect those men, but I think rather the symbolism of the fire here and the bush, and because God says to Moses, you're on holy ground here, it points to God's holy presence, not to Israel. Um, Philip Ryken suggests that the unquenchable fire may also have represented God's power, His glory, His eternity, His self-sufficiency, and that may be, but mainly, I think the point of it is 
God is a holy God and He is present. And that is such a vital lesson if you're going to serve God. God doesn't use dirty vessels. And if you're going to serve God, you have to walk in the light. You have to be clean before Him. And you have to recognize God is present with me always. You know, guys, just as an aside, you'd never look at porn if you remembered God is present. How could you do that? The holy God dwells within me. And He is a a holy God who hates sin. You see, that kind of thing sanctifies you. It sets you apart. It puts a holy fear of God in your life. And when Paul sums up the unbelievers and their sin in Romans 3.18, you know what he says? There's no fear of God before their eyes. They don't fear God. Those who know Him should fear Him in a holy sense. Now, because we're in Christ, of course, we don't need to fear ultimate condemnation. Romans 8.1, thank God. But Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29 says that we should offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. And then he cites Deuteronomy 4 there, for our God is a consuming fire. A second way we need to know God, not just His holiness, but God's servants need to understand His faithfulness to His covenant promises. Uh, Exodus 2, verse 24 says, God remembered His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then in chapter 3 and verse 6, God tells Moses, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then in verse 6, I mean verse 8, God mentions His covenant promise to give Israel the land of the Canaanites. And in verse 15, God tells Moses to tell the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. And then He repeats that again in the very next verse, verse 16, as if Moses didn't hear it. And then in verse 17, he repeats again the promise of verse 8, to give them the land. Now, you've got to ask as you read this story, why is this repeated over and over and over and over? Well, it's repeated, I think, so that Israel and we would know that God is a God who keeps his covenant promises. Now, what is his covenant promise to us? Well, it's called the new covenant. The new covenant. Jesus mentioned it on the night he was betrayed during the Lord's Supper. The book of Hebrews chapter 8 mentions it. It comes out of Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel chapter 36 where God promises to forgive all of our sins through Jesus' blood. He promises to remove our heart of stone and to give us a heart of flesh that's warm toward him. He promises to put his spirit within us all because of his sovereign grace and that's the message of the gospel that we go and proclaim. That, and we can be sure of it because we know God keeps His covenant promises. The third thing we need to understand is that God's silence never implies indifference to human needs. In verse 24, again, we read that God heard the people's groaning. He remembered His covenant. He saw the sons of Israel in their slavery And he knew them. And then in verse 7, 
of chapter 3, God says to Moses, Surely I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've given heed, that is, he heard their cry because of their taskmaster, and I am aware of their suffering. God knew them. And in case Moses missed it, God repeats the same thing again in verse 9, that he's heard the people's cry and he's seen their oppression. Now that raises the question, why did God let Israel go on for over 200 years under the thumb of this, these different cruel rulers in Egypt when he's aware of their suffering? And if you were here in my first message on, on uh, Moses, you remember Genesis 15. God tells us why. One reason. And that is, he said, the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Wow. What that means is, God was patient in not judging the Canaanites. When finally he does, he sends Israel in there and tells them to slaughter the Canaanites, but by then their iniquity had filled up to the brim. And God said, it's time. But God is a God of mercy. And even though His people are suffering and crying out for centuries, God is not indifferent. He has a purpose, a plan that is bigger than they probably understood. They didn't have the book of Genesis yet. And you know, when you're suffering, don't Doubt God's care for you. That's the enemy's ploy. If God really loved you, you wouldn't be going through this. Don't listen to that. Someone has said, never interpret God's love by your circumstances. Instead, interpret your circumstances by God's love. Remember 1 Peter 5? Cast all your anxiety on Him. He cares for you. And then he goes on to talk about suffering and how God eventually will confirm and establish you. So first, we need to know God's holiness. Secondly, we need to understand His faithfulness to His covenant promises. Thirdly, we need to understand that His silence never implies indifference. And fourthly, God's servants need to understand His intended blessing for His people and That's in verse 8 where God rehearses how He intends to bless Israel. He's going to deliver them from the Egyptians. He's going to bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey. And that's a figure of speech that stands for a bountiful land. And the message we have to bring to people is God's free grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ. God promises to forgive all of a sinner's sins. And to give them eternal life with Him where He promises He'll take away all sorrow and pain and suffering and death. I mean, how much more bountiful can you get than that? And that's our message that we have is God's promise to bless those who trust in Christ. And so even in our trials now, we need to look through that and see, as Paul says there at the end of Romans 8, that there's nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Even persecution and death cannot do that. And then finally, God's servants need to know God more deeply. And Moses asked God in 
uh, verse 13, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I'll say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What's his name? What shall I say to them? And God replies in verse 14, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now here, please take off your shoes. We are on holy ground. Uh, We join Moses here in one of the most profound and deep, mysterious revelations of God in Scripture. In Hebrew, I am who I am is related to the four consonants that make up the name Yahweh. Some translations have Jehovah, but that's an incorrect translation. Yahweh is more correct. If you have a modern version, such as the New American Standard or other versions, usually it translates Yahweh with Lord in small caps. Um, And it's God's personal covenant name. It's the name he used when he established his covenant with Abraham. God's name, according to Walter Kaiser, represents his person, his character, his authority, his power, and his reputation. Uh, It shows God to be a personal God, a God with whom we can have a relationship. Also, according to some other Hebrew scholars, it refers to his absolute independence, that God exists by himself without the need of anyone else. It points to his constancy and his consistency that he never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It reveals God's self-existence, that he is uncaused. It refers to his eternality, that he always has been, always will be. Uh, F.B. Meyer wrote, There is no was or will be with him, but always the present tense. All that he was to the fathers, he is today. And all that he will be to their children, he is now. Nothing to learn, nothing to acquire, nothing to become. He alone is reality as contrasted with the vanities of heathen deities. Now here's the great news. You come to the New Testament and you learn that Jesus Christ is the eternal I Am. He's debating with some Jews who are skeptics in John 8, 24, and he says, literally, the text reads this in the Greek, unless you believe that I am, now the translators insert that word he, but it's not in the original, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And then at the end of that chapter, he makes the astounding statement in verse 58, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham came into being, I am. And they got the message. He is claiming to be the one who appeared to Moses at the burning bush because they pick up stones to stone him for blasphemy. And he is God's only way that you can be delivered from your sins. Either you believe in Jesus as the eternal I am, second person of the Trinity, who took on human flesh, 
went to the cross to bear your sins, was raised from the dead, is coming back again in power and glory. You either believe that or you're lost and condemned. You're in bondage to sin and you're headed for judgment. Those are the only options. Now, if you know him, and I'm assuming most of you do, then your aim every day should be, Lord, I want to know you more. I want to know you more. Paul, about 25 years after he was saved, he's in prison in Rome, and he writes in Philippians 3.8, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And then in verse 10, he aims, <clears throat> he says that his aim is that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. And he goes on and he says, I haven't yet arrived, but that's what I'm pressing on toward. Pressing on to know him. And that should be our goal too. So that God can use us as his chosen people that other chosen people who haven't yet come to faith, as Paul put it in 2 Timothy 2.10, may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this amazing story that is revealed to us in your inspired word of how you revealed yourself to Moses and gave him a second chance to be your instrument to deliver his people. There's not a person hearing my voice this morning, Lord, who has not failed. Thank you that you restore us when we come back to you and repent. Thank you that you recycle us, give us second, third, fourth chances. And Lord, I pray you would use us to deliver your people in this city who have yet to come to know Jesus. I pray if there are any here this morning who have never put their trust in Christ, that they would do so before they leave their seat this morning. And we will give you the thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.